In this recording, we're going to analyze a Gemara on Megillah Dafyud Beis Amid Aleph, which deals with which sin had the Jewish people committed that precipitated the events and the story of Purim. Meaning, why did God give Haman the ability to threaten their lives and to scare them and potentially to do major harm to the Jewish people? What sin had they committed that necessitated that series of events? I'm going to be using primarily the analysis in the Manos HaLevi, which is a phenomenal commentary on the Megillah, Megillah's Esther, written by Rab Shlomo Alkabitz, the author of L'Chadodi, and it's really one of the greatest, most insightful commentaries on the Megillah. So in his introduction to the Megillah, he has a lengthy analysis of this Gemara that we're going to be looking at. So we'll primarily rely on his analysis, and we'll add in other commentators as we go along or as needed. So the Gemara in Megillah records a strange conversation between the students of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and their teacher. It says, Shalu Talmidav Es Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The students asked Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Mipnei man nischaivu sonehem shal Yisrael sheba'oso hadar kliya. Why were the enemies of the Jewish people at that time, meaning at the Purim time, deserving to be destroyed. Now, enemies of the Jewish people is a reference to the Jewish people themselves. It's a sort of clean, nicer way that the rabbis of the Talmud will talk about the Jewish people when they're going to be punished or something bad's going to happen to them. So they call them the enemies of the Jewish people, but it's a euphemism for the Jewish people themselves. So the students are asking Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, why did the Jews in the times of Purim deserve to be destroyed? Omar lahem imru atem. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai responded, you guys tell me. So this is immediately strange. In other words, they just asked him a question and his response to them is, you tell me. Obviously, they don't know the answer because they're asking him. So sure enough, they do have an answer. The students answer that the reason the Jews deserve to be destroyed is because they had benefited and enjoyed the party that Ahasuerus threw at the beginning of the Megillah. And that was a terrible sin. Now, what exactly was the sin of attending Ahasuerus' party? So here we have a big debate between various commentators. The first approach is that there must have been treif food at the party, so they ate something that was non-kosher. The problem with that is that generally when someone eats something non-kosher, they don't receive the death penalty. So why in this case was the punishment so severe for the sin of eating non-kosher that Haman threatened their very lives? So there's a few approaches to explain this. The Rosh Yosef says that potentially they ate chelev, which is the prohibited fats of the animal. So in that case, the punishment is kares, that the soul gets cut off, which is a very severe punishment. So potentially if they had eaten chelev, it would explain why Haman was threatening their very lives. The Chasim Sofer has another approach to this, and he suggests based on the Medrash, which says that the prohibited food was either they drank stam yenam, wine which had been handled by a non-Jew, or they ate bishol akum, which is food that was cooked by a non-Jew. So both of those were prohibited by the rabbis for various reasons. And the rule in the Gemara is, misa. Someone who violates the laws of the rabbis deserves death. So that's why the severity for this non-kosher food was much more than regular non-kosher food because these were rabbinic prohibitions and therefore there was the death penalty. And Rabbi Yonasan Eibeshitz in the Yaros Dvash, Chelek Alev Drush Gimel, 
So he says the same approach as the Hasim Sofer, but he says something interesting. He doesn't argue that they must have violated these rabbinic rules based on a medrash, but he just argues it logically. He says that presumably they were religious and pious enough not to eat biblically prohibited foods. But they probably did violate rabbinic laws against eating wine that was handled by a non-Jew or food which was cooked by a non-Jew or meat which was not properly supervised. And the reason is because in this huge party, he says, How could you ensure proper supervision and hashkacha in such a massive party with the whole country there? So it must be that they were lax on the supervision standards, which are prohibited midra banan, because there really wasn't any way to ensure proper hashkacha at such a balagan of a party. So therefore, because it was a rabbinic prohibition, like the Chassam Sofer said, the punishment was much more severe than had they violated a Torah prohibition. So according to the approach of the Rosh Yosef and Rabbi Yonas and Ibishitz and the Chassam Sofer, the sin of going to Achashverosh's party was that they ate treif non-kosher food at the party. Now the Beis Yitzchak has a question on this because the Gemara explains the verse in Esther, Lasos Kirtzon Ishva Ish, to do the will of each person. So the Gemara explains that that's a reference to two specific people, two specific ishes, which is Lasos Kirtzon Mordechai Vahaman, to do the will of Mordechai and the will of Haman. So the party was tailored to both Mordechai and Haman's needs. And the Marsha explains that it was tailored to Mordechai that there was plenty of kosher food. You didn't need to eat non-kosher food. And it was tailored to Haman who wanted to be able to eat whatever he wanted to. So you see that they went to a lot of effort to make sure that the Jews did have proper supervised kosher food. So why are these commentators assuming that the Jews must have eaten something prohibited at the party? So there is a second approach to what the sin was. And this is from the riff in his commentary on the Ein Yaakov. That's not the famous posek, the early riff in the back of the Gemaras, but that's Rabbi Shaya Pinto from the 17th century, which is a commentary on the Ein Yaakov. So he suggests this idea. And Rabbi Yonas and himself also in the Yaros Dvash later on in Drush Ches. And the Chassam Sofer also mentions this. So some of the same commentators are mentioning the second idea, which is according to the Gemara, the party that Achashverosh threw was to celebrate the fact that he thought the prophecy that after 70 years the Jews would return and rebuild the second base on Mikdash had not happened. He miscalculated and he thought the 70 years had passed. So the party was to celebrate the fact that he did not think the Jews were going to restore their sovereignty and go back to Israel and have the Beis HaMikdash. So that was why he brought out the vessels of the Beis HaMikdash and partied with them. So this party was really a very mournful party from the perspective of Jewish history because it was saying that there was no more hope for the Jewish people. And the fact that they went and celebrated with him was a terrible sin, even though all the food they were eating was kosher, but the whole spirit of the party was one which was denying that God was going to save them. So that was the sin. So those are the two options for what sin they committed by attending the party. Either they ate food which was non-kosher, or they celebrated the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Either way, attending that party was a sin, and according to the students of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that was the reason why God gave Haman permission to destroy the Jewish people. Now the conversation continues, and Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, their teacher, asks them, 
if your theory is correct, that it was because of the sin of attending the party, then imkain shibishushan yahargu, shibichol ha'olam kulo al yehargu. Only the Jews in the capital city of Shushan should have been killed because they attended the party. But the Jews in the rest of the world should have been spared. Why was Haman's decree on all of the Jews globally when the Jews outside of Shushan had not attended the party? So Amru Lo Emar Atta. So now the students say to him, then you explain to us what happened. In other words, if you're questioning our approach, so then what's your approach? So He said to them because the Jews had bowed down to an idol. Now it's unclear exactly what he's referencing here that the Jews had bowed to an idol. There's two major options. Option number one is in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, so a few years before the Purim story, there's a story recorded in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol and he orders the Jews and everyone to bow down, and Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah refuse to bow down, and he throws them into a fiery furnace and they survive. So, the implication of that story is that only Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah refused to bow down, but the rest of the Jews had bowed down. So according to option number one, it was that sin which a few years later precipitated God giving Haman the ability to threaten all of the Jewish people. Option number two is bowing down to Haman. Because in the Megillah we read that everyone was bowing down to Haman except for Mordechai. So it could be that that was the bowing down to an idol which precipitated God giving Haman the ability to threaten all of their lives. Now Rashi explicitly says, option number one, that we are talking about the idol in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Marsha explains that there's some pretty good reasons to identify the idol as Nebuchadnezzar's idol as opposed to bowing down to Haman. The first reason he suggests is because bowing down to Haman was not really idolatry. It was just a way to show respect for this very powerful political leader. So it wasn't really an idolatry sin and therefore there should not have been a death penalty punishment for that. But the Marsha says that that's not actually true. For two reasons. There's two problems with saying that Haman's idolatry was less severe than, than Nebuchadnezzar's idolatry. First of all, according to Rabbeinu Tam, and we'll discuss this much more later, the idol that Nebuchadnezzar built was also not an actual idol. It was a display of respect for the king. So according to Rabbeinu Tam, there was no difference between bowing down to Haman to show respect or bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol to show respect for Nebuchadnezzar. Neither of these were actually religious objects. That's problem number one. Problem number two with that distinction, says the Marsha, is that Rashi in the Megillah at the beginning of chapter three writes that Haman was treating himself like a god. So bowing down to Haman was not just a sign of respect. It actually was a form of idolatry. The Ibn Ezra also quotes the famous thing that Haman would wear idols on himself so that when the Jews were bowing down to him, based on the king's decree to show him respect, they were also bowing down to idols. So either way, according to Rashi or the Ibn Ezra, bowing to Haman was actually a form of religious idolatry. And therefore, we could identify the sin of bowing to the idol as the sin of bowing to Haman. So the Marsha says that the real reason why we don't identify this sin with bowing to Haman, and instead Rashi focuses on Nebuchadnezzar's idol, 
is because otherwise you'd have the same problem that Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai just asked his students, which is why were the Jews in the rest of the world being punished, not only in Shushan? So if it's Haman's idol, then again, only the Jews in Shushan bowed down to him, not the Jews in the rest of the world. So the question would remain, why were the Jews outside of Shushan being punished? That's why Rashi identifies the sin of bowing down to the idol as the sin of bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, which was a more global sin. And that's why the Jews all over the world deserve to be destroyed, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now, we'll come back to this issue in the Manos HaLevi's analysis, but just for now, those are the two major options of which idol it was. And as we saw, there's good reasons why Rashi assumes that we're talking about the idol in Nebuchadnezzar's times. Now, the conversation in the Gemara continues, and the students ask Reb Shimon ben Yochai a question on his approach. And they say, meaning, was God being a pushover? He was saving them even though they didn't deserve to be saved. So their question is that if, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Jews committed such a terrible sin of bowing to an idol, why in the end were they actually saved? In other words, they deserved to be destroyed. Why did God step in and do a miracle and save them? So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai answered, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai explains that the Jews did not actually worship idolatry. They were just scared, but in their hearts, they never believed in idolatry. So because they were only superficially bowing to the idolatry, so too God only superficially scared them, but he never intended to actually destroy them. So both their bowing and the punishment which came to them were both an appearance of idolatry and punishment, but God was not actually going to punish them because they had not actually committed idolatry. So that's the conversation that the Gemara records about which sin caused the events of Purim. Now, obviously, there's a lot of questions about both the format of this conversation and the content of it. And the Manos Halevi has nine questions. I'm going to go through some of them. Uh, the first question that he wants to know is if the students had their own approach to why the Jews were punished because they attended the party, why did they even ask Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai why the Jews were punished? They already knew the answer. Um, in addition, why did Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai then turn around and say to them, you tell me, because if they're asking him the question, then presumably they don't know the answer. So the whole conversation is a bit strange. In addition, the Manos HaLevi asks on the approach of Rashi that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says it's because they bowed to an idol in the times of Nebuchadnezzar. And we've seen that there's good reason why Rashi has to say that. But if so, why is God punishing the next generation years later and not the people who actually committed the sin? That doesn't seem fair. Also, the Manos HaLevi assumes that differently than the Marsha that the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, not all of the Jews in the world bow to it, and that seems like a pretty good assumption, only the Jews in Bavel bowed down to that idol. So if so, we're back to the same question. Why were the Jews in the rest of the world punished and not only the Jews in Bavel? So the same way Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai asked that only the Jews in Shushan attended the party, the students could have asked on his approach that only the Jews in Bavel bowed down to the idol. So that's another question. He also asks on the question that the students asked Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which is why were the Jews in actuality saved if they had bowed to an idol? So he says, first of all, why is that not a question on their approach too? 
Meaning, if going to the party was a terrible sin, and like we said, potentially they were celebrating the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, so you could ask the same question, why at the end of the day were they actually saved? Why didn't God let Haman destroy them? So why is this only a question on Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's sin and not on the student's approach? Um, in addition, he says, what about teshuva, repentance, and davening? These are ways that you can uproot a bad decree. So what are they even asking when they say, why were the Jews saved at the end of the day? The answer is because they repented. They did the sin, but because they did teshuva, they were then saved. So what kind of question is this? Why were the Jews saved? Another question on this also is that the Gemara in Brachos, and Bez, quotes a famous line that the angels ask God. It says in the Torah, that you treat everyone with justice and fairness. You don't go easy on anyone. But it says in the blessing of the Kohanim, Yisa Hashem Panavelecha, that Hashem should be lenient with you. So how could that be? That's a blatant contradiction. So the Gemara gives a very poignant answer that the God says, because the Jews are strict on themselves. I told them that they only have to bench when they're full. According to the Torah, you only have to bench after eating bread when you're totally satiated. But the rabbis added on that even if you eat a kazayis or a kabetza, the size of an olive or an egg, so then you go ahead and bench. So the Jews are more strict than the letter of the law halacha. So therefore, I too am more lenient with them. But you see from that Gemara that God is more lenient with the Jews. So what kind of question is this in the Gemara in Megillah that why was God more lenient with the Jews in this situation when we already know that that's how he acts towards the Jews? Finally, the Gemara seems to imply that according to Rab Shimon Bar Yochai, the idol of Nebuchadnezzar was an actual idol. We mentioned before that this is a debate and Rabbeinu Tam holds that it was not an actual idol. But the simple reading of the Gemara here is that it was an idol. But the Manas Halevi points out that in the Medrash in Shir Hashirim Rabbah, Zayim Ches, it quotes a debate between the Rabbanan, the rabbis, and Rab Bar Yochai. The rabbis hold that Nebuchadnezzar's idol was an actual idolatry, and Rab Bar Yochai holds that it was not actual idolatry. So as of right now, this seems like a contradiction that in our Gemara, Rab Bar Yochai identifies the sin which gave Haman his power as being bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, but in the Medrash, he holds that that was not even a real idol. So in order to explain this very perplexing conversation, the Manos HaLevi says the following. He says that the students of Rav Shemim Bar Yochai felt that the sin of idolatry is much worse than a normal sin. That makes perfect sense, but also he quotes all sorts of sources to this. The Gemara says that idolatry is as if you're denying the entirety of the Torah, so it's much more than just doing one sin. And the Nevi'im talk all about how idolatry is a complete rejection of God. So because of the severity of idolatry, the students felt that could not have been the sin which precipitated Haman's rise because that sin God would have punished immediately. He would not have waited a generation to punish them years later. So the other option was because they attended the meal. But the students felt that that was not a big enough sin 
to warrant this type of punishment where their lives were threatened. So they were stuck. They had two options, but one sin was too terrible for God to have waited, and one sin was too minor for God to have threatened their lives. So that was the question that they posed to Rab Shimon Bar Yochai when they said to him, why did the Jews deserve to be killed? And Rab Shimon Bar Yochai understood that they were not just asking him a question in a vacuum, but they had thought through this issue and they knew the two options and they had problems with each of the options. So that's why he turned it back to them and he said, you tell me, because he could sense that they had their own thoughts about this issue. So this makes sense of the initial conversation conversation, which seemed to be a non sequitur, that they were sort of talking past each other. But the real reason was that there had been a lot of thought that went into this question. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai understood that and he wanted to hear their discussion. So they then answered him, They benefited from the party of that wicked man, meaning Achashverosh. Now, the Manos HaLevi explains this answer, that they were trying to identify the major sins which going to this party had involved. So first they say, Nehenu, they benefited, they enjoyed. In other words, they were not coerced to go to this party. This was a sin that they chose to do completely of their own free will, of their own volition. No one had forced them. And the opposite, there's all this evidence in the Megillah that Achashverosh just threw it open to whoever wanted. Anyone was allowed to choose whether to come or not. They wanted to do what Mordechai wanted. They wanted to do what Haman wanted. It was a completely optional event. And Mordechai told them not to go. And they still chose to go and benefit from it. So that's the first element of their sin, according to the students, that they went of their own free will to this terrible party. Second, they call it the party of the wicked man. And here they're trying to say that as we explained before, this party went totally against the spirit of the Torah. It was celebrating things which were antithetical to Judaism. Even though the food was kosher, the Manos Halevi says, but still the spirit of the party was something that the Jews should not have been at because it was a party of wickedness from the perspective of Judaism. So the students are telling Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that even though on the surface attending the king's party was not a major sin that warranted destruction of the Jewish people, but when you examine it, there are two elements which make it much worse than we originally noticed, which is that the Jews chose to go and that it was totally antithetical to the spirit of Judaism. And that would explain why they were deserving of being destroyed. So Rab Shimon Bar Yochai didn't disagree with their assessment of the party, but he pointed out that there's still a lingering problem here, which is only the Jews in Shushan had gone to the party, but the Jews all over the world were threatened by Haman. So Rab Shimon Bar Yochai answered the question going with the other approach, that it was because they had bowed down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. But to that, the students responded with the question which had been bothering them, which is, meaning why did God wait to punish them and not just immediately punish the people who bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol? Because the sin of idolatry is so terrible that as soon as they bow down, they should have been punished. Why did God wait a few years to punish the next generation? But says the Manos HaLevi that actually the students had misunderstood what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was saying because they understood that it was an either-or situation. It was one of the sins, but not both of them. So that's why they were bothered by their questions because neither sin seemed to really make sense in the context of this equation. 
But Reb Shimon Bar Yochai was trying to tell them something new. He was trying to tell them that it was actually a combination of both sins. And that is what he proceeded to explain in what he continues to say, which is that the bowing to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar was only superficial, but the Jews never actually believed that it had any power. They were not worshipping it in any way. They were only worshipping it on the outside because they were afraid. So that's why it was not such a terrible sin that God punished them immediately because it was not real idolatry. It was fake idolatry. So the thing which saved them when it came to the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar was the fact that they had been forced to bow down. And that's why, says Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that years later when they chose of their own free will to go to the optional party of Achashverosh, then God decided to punish them for the earlier sin because they could no longer defend themselves by saying we were just forced to do it. In other words, originally they could have said to God, look, we were forced to bow down to the idol, but we didn't believe it, so we don't deserve to be punished. But once they chose to do their own sin, so now they lost the defense of we were forced to do sins. Now they're showing that they choose to do sins, even when it's optional. And therefore God went back and he decided to punish them for the sin of the idolatry, which had happened years earlier. So that's the explanation of what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is saying at the end of the Gemara, that the idolatry was only superficial, and therefore God only punished them superficially, meaning the whole situation came to a head now in the times of Purim, because the Jews attended an optional party, and therefore God decided to punish them for the superficial, fear-driven bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, but again, they did not deserve to be destroyed because they had not committed real idolatry. So it was only a threat. There was the appearance of Haman destroying them. But in the end, God saved them because they didn't deserve destruction. So this is the Manos HaLevi's explanation of this Gemara. It makes sense of the questions that he asked. The main thing that he's adding in is that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is rejecting the either or, that you have to choose one of these sins. And instead, he's arguing that it was a combination of both. The punishment was because they bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. But the reason why it was precipitated now was because they committed an optional sin of their own free will of going to Achashverosh's party. So together, those two things brought to a head and gave Haman the ability to threaten them. Now, there is a lingering problem here because if you need the combination of both sins, then we should be back to the problem that only the Jews of Shushan should have been punished because the Jews in the rest of the world only committed the first sin of bowing to the idolatry, but they never did the optional sin of going to the party. That was only the Jews in Shushan. So if according to the Manos HaLevi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai agrees that you also need the sin of attending the party in order to get to the situation where the Jews are threatened, why were the Jews in the rest of the world who had not attended the party threatened? So the Manos HaLevi sort of turns everything on its head now. And he explains, based on the Medrash, that Achashverosh invited the leaders of all communities throughout the world to come to his party. So there was representation 
of all the Jewish communities throughout the world at this party, and that's why they were also liable and included in this punishment. So that obviously changes our understanding of the situation, and I'm not sure, according to that, why you couldn't just say that initially, meaning why did Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai even ask this question to his students if he knew that there was representation from all the Jewish communities in the world at that party? So that part is unclear to me. Now, the Manus HaLevi says that after he wrote this, so many years later, he came across the commentary on the Megillah of Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Shushan, and there he saw a very similar approach, but they differ in a very significant way. And the key debate between Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Shushan and the Manus HaLevi is this same debate that we've referenced before. Was Nebuchadnezzar's idol an actual religious idol? Was it Avodah Zarah? Or was it something more political as a way to honor the king by bowing down to it? So that's a central issue. And the Manos Halevi has been assuming throughout that it was an actual idolatry. Now, the reason he thinks it was not a sin of idolatry, because then the Jews really did deserve destruction, is because they did not want to worship this idolatry. So even though it was actual Avodah Zarah they were bowing down to, but they did not believe in it, they were not worshiping it, they were coerced and they were afraid of being killed and that's why they bowed down to it. So according to the Manos Halevi, it was idolatry, but it was not an actual sin of worshiping idolatry. Now, Rabbi Huda ibn Shoshan assumes, like Rabbeinu Tam, that it was not an actual idolatry, it was just a political figurine to bow and show honor to the king. So therefore, he explains this Gemara a little differently, and he says that the students misunderstood Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's answer. Same as the Manos HaLevi, but the Manos HaLevi said they misunderstood by thinking the whole sin was only idolatry, when in fact it was a combination of the idolatry and the attending the party. But according to Rabbi Yehuda ibn Shushan, what they misunderstood was when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai told them that the sin was idolatry, they thought it was actual idolatry. So that's why they asked him, why were the Jews saved in the end? In other words, if it was the actual sin of idolatry, then they didn't deserve to be saved. But what the students had misunderstood was that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai meant that they bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, which was a political idol. So it was much less severe than an actual religious idolatrous Avodah Zarah. So when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai realized that they misunderstood, that was what he answered them, that they only bowed down because they were afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, that was their sin, that they had shown fear for this king, when really they should have been afraid of God. So that's why God just did this to frighten them, but he wasn't actually going to destroy them because the sin was not severe enough for that. He was just trying to frighten them to show them that they should fear God and not Nebuchadnezzar. So that's Rabbi Yudah Ibn Shushan's explanation of this back and forth between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students. And in a lot of the steps leading up to the end, he agrees with the Manos HaLevi. But at the end, they have this difference, which is based on whether Nebuchadnezzar's idol was a real idol or not. And that's going to change the final step in the conversation between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his students. Both of them agree that the students misunderstood part of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's answer. The question is what they misunderstood. Did they misunderstand that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai needs a combination of both sins together? 
or did they misunderstand that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai believes that the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar was not real idolatry, which is also, as the Manos Halevi pointed out, his position in the Medrash and Shira Shirim. So those are the two approaches that he discusses, and they're also going to differ as to why, in fact, the Jews did not deserve to be destroyed for doing idolatry, either because it wasn't real idolatry or because they were coerced. So there's a lot of very interesting things going on here. Now, we keep referencing the issue, but this discussion leads directly to the question of was Nebuchadnezzar's idol a real Avodazara or was it just a political monument? So as we've seen, there's a number of people that debate this, but the main one who says that it was just a political monument is Rabbeinu Tam, and the Manos Halevi is going to argue with him at length. So let's go through this debate. Rabbeinu Tam is quoted in Tosfos in three places, in Psachim and Gimel Amad Beis, in Ksub Islam and Gimel Amad Beis, and in Avodah Zarah in Gimel Amad Aleph. And he presents a number of proofs to his position that Nebuchadnezzar's idol was not true idolatry. Number one, the Gemara Nebuchadnezzar Zara on Gimel Abed Aleph says that God in the future will tell the non-Jews to testify about how committed the Jews were to the Torah. So it uses the phrase that Yavo Nimrod v'yayid ba'avraham shlo avad avodas kochavim. Let Nimrod come and testify that Avraham did not worship idolatry. But then it says, Let Nebuchadnezzar come and testify that Hanani Mishal Vazarya didn't bow down to the idol. So why does it change the phrase? It doesn't say that Hanani Mishal Vazarya didn't worship idolatry the same way it said Avraham didn't worship idolatry. So Rabbeinu Tam explained, because Nimrod's idolatry was an actual idol. So Avraham bowing down would have been Avodah Zarah. So that's why the Gemara says that Avraham didn't do Avodah Zarah. But Nebuchadnezzar's idol was just a political monument. It was not an actual idol. So therefore the Gemara does not use that phrase. It just says that they didn't bow down to the idol. Number two, the Gemara in Ksubis on Lamed Gimel Lamed Beis is trying to show that suffering is terrible. And it says, That had the Babylonians beat and whipped and tortured Hanani Mishal Vazarya, then they would have bowed down to this idol. So Tosos asks, how could they worship idolatry regardless of how much suffering they were going through? He has all these sources that indicate that it's not only a Yahari Val Yavar, that a person has to die rather than commit idolatry, but they even have to suffer no matter how much suffering there is. There's all these situations in Jewish history where Jews have put up with anything rather than worship idolatry. So how could the Gemara say that Hanani Mishal Vazario would have folded had they been tortured? So again, says Rabbi Nutam, because here they were not actually dealing with real idolatry. They were only dealing with a political thing. So therefore, they could have, according to the letter of the law, bow down if they were suffering tremendously. Number three, the Gemara in Tzachiman and Gimel Amid Beis says a surprising thing. It asks, why did Hananiah Bishal Vazarya decide to sacrifice their lives for Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name? So the Gemara has a very surprising answer that Nosu Kalvachomer Ba'atzman Meitzvardeim. They learned this behavior from the frogs that were the second plague in Egypt, and the frogs gave up their lives for God even though they're not commanded to sanctify God's name. So Hanani Mishal Vazarya said that we, being Jews, who are commanded to sanctify God's name, then certainly we should give up our lives. So this is obviously a very surprising answer to the question, because the halacha is that a Jew has to give up their life rather than 
violate and bow down to Avodah Zarah, to idolatry. So what kind of question is this? Why did Hanani, Mishal, Vazaria decide to give their lives rather than do idolatry? That's obvious. That's the halacha. And what is the answer that they had to learn it out from the frogs when that's an explicit halacha? So again, says Rabbeinu Tam, because this was not actual idolatry, this was a political situation, and therefore the only factor was Kiddush Hashem. It was not an actual halacha that they had to give their lives, but they were sanctifying God's name and reinforcing the Jewish people's commitment to Judaism by doing this. Number four is from our Gemara that we've been studying in Megillah, where Rab Shimon Bar Yochai says that the Jews were not destroyed for bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's idol because they were coerced, they were in fear, they did not actually believe in idolatry. But Toso says if it was real idolatry, then you're not allowed to do it even out of fear. But according to Rabbeinu Tam, because it was just a political monument, therefore they were allowed to bow when their lives were threatened. Finally, number five, says Rabbeinu Tam, because the Pasuk itself in Daniel, when Hanani, Mishal, Vazarya respond to Nebuchadnezzar, they say, That we're not going to worship your God, and we're not going to bow to your idol. So it sounds like there's two things going on here. One is that they will not worship his God, which is a religious statement. And number two is that they won't bow to his idol, which was a political issue. So those are Rabbeinu Tam's proofs, very strong proofs that indicate that this was not a real idol, it was not actual Avodah Zarah, it was rather a political situation that Hanani Mishal Vazaria found themselves in. Now this ties in with Tosus's overall opinion in the following question. There are three sins which Halacha says are Yeharig Val Yavar. A person is required to give their life rather than violate idolatry, adultery, or murder. In addition, any time that non-Jews are forcing Jews to violate the Torah in a public way, to weaken the faith of the whole community, so again, a person is obligated to give their life to withstand that because we don't want the entire community to lose their commitment to Torah. But what happens in a situation where a person is allowed to violate the commandment rather than give their life up, but they want to give their life up? So let's say you have a very prominent person and uh, someone is trying to force them to eat non-kosher food. So they are allowed to eat the non-kosher food in order to save their life, but they want to make a statement. They want it to be known that they gave their life for the sake of the Torah because they feel that it will strengthen in the Jewish community and it will bring people closer to God. Are they allowed to choose to do that? So the Rambam holds that they are not allowed to choose in that situation to give their life because since they are allowed to violate this sin in order to save their life, so a person has to save their life. That's a very high value in Judaism. Tosvos, on the other hand, holds that they are allowed to optionally give their life in order to make a Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name, and to bring people closer to the Torah. And that is precisely what Hananya Mishal Vazaria innovated based on the frogs. In other words, this was a situation where it was not an actual sin. So Hanani Mishal Vazario were not obligated to give their lives according to the letter of the law. It was not a Yaharig Val Yavor. But they knew that as great pious leaders of the Jewish people, them giving their lives would strengthen the Jewish people. It would be a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. And so they chose to do so. They ended up being saved by a miracle. But they chose to give their lives in this situation optionally 
in order to strengthen the Torah. And that was what they derived again from the frogs because the frogs gave their lives by going into ovens, even though they're not obligated in Kiddush Hashem. So certainly Hanani Mishal Vazariah held that they should give their lives even in an optional situation in order to strengthen Kiddush Hashem in the world. So that's where Rabbeinu Tam's analysis of Nebuchadnezzar's idol not being actual idolatry is leading to this halachic position that a person is allowed to optionally give their life in order to increase Kiddush Hashem in the world. On the other hand, the Rambam who holds that one is not allowed to, so he would have to say that the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar was a true idol. And the Tosos in Psachim and Ksubos also disagrees with Rabbeinu Tam on this because he points out that the word palchu, that they worshipped, which the Gemara uses in regard to Hanani Mishal Vazarya, that lo palchu litzalma, they did not worship the idolatry. So that sounds like this was true idolatry. This was not just bowing to the king in order to honor him politically. So Tosos also suggests that there was true idolatry going on here. And with regard to the issue of why did Hanani Mishal Vazarya have to learn this out from the frogs? Why didn't they just look in the halacha and see that they're obligated to give the their lives rather than commit idolatry. So the re quoted in Tosos and Sachin has another explanation, which is they could have run away. They knew in advance what was coming and they could have escaped and they wouldn't have been in town when this whole situation went down. So they chose to stay and give their lives rather than worship Avodah in order to make a Kiddush Hashem. That's what they were learning out. They were not learning out that one can choose to give their life, even in a situation where they don't have to, but they were learning out that you don't have to run away. You can choose to stay and make a stand over this issue. Either way, that's Rabbeinu Tam's position and some discussion surrounding that. Now, as we know, the Manus Halevi disagrees with Rabbeinu Tam and he believes that Nebuchadnezzar's idol was actual Avodah Zara. And he quotes a number of statements in Chazal that indicate in that way, the most prominent is that the Gemara in Sanhedrin on Daftzadi Gimel and Aleph and Perak Chelek says that God was going to destroy the entire world over this until he saw Hanani Mishal Vazariah, they saved the world from destruction. So the Manas Alevi says God would not destroy the entire world for the minor sin of the Jews bowing to a political monument. So it must have been real Avodah Zarah. And he quotes a number of other Midrashim which also indicate that it was real Avodah Zarah. But then he comes to the question from Sachin. If it was real Avodah Zarah, why did Hanani Mishal Bazaria need to learn out from the frogs that they should give their lives when it's an explicit halacha that it's a Yaharig Val Yavor? So we mentioned that the Re in Tosos explains that they could have escaped and been out of town when this happened. But the Manos Halevi has another explanation, which is a very important explanation halachically too. He points out that the Gemara says, why did Hanani Mishal Vazaria Mosru Atzman Litoch Kivshan Haesh? Why did they throw themselves into the fire? And the Nemuke Yosef has an even more explicit version, Shehepilu Atzman Litoch Kivshan Haesh, that literally that they threw themselves into the fire. Now, the normal phrase to use here would have been, why did they not bow to the idol? Why is the Gemara focusing specifically on the fact that they put themselves or threw themselves into the fire? 
So the Manos HaLevi suggests that what went on over here was that they didn't wait for the Babylonian guards to throw them into the fire, but they jumped in proactively. So effectively, this was not a case where people were killing them because they wouldn't do Avodah Zarah, but it was a case where they committed suicide in advance of knowing that they were going to be forced to do Avodah Zarah. And the, the Manas Halevi reads the Psukim, and he also finds a source in the, the Medrash, which compares Hanani Mishal Vazaria to Shaul HaMelech, and the King Shaul committed suicide. So all of this indicates, like the Manas Halevi is saying, not that they were killed, but that Hanani Mishal Vazaria decided to kill themselves to commit suicide because there was going to be Avodah Zarah here. So that explains the Gemara's question in Pesachim. The Gemara is not asking why did they give up their lives rather than commit Avodah Zarah. That, of course, is an explicit halacha. But the Gemara is trying to understand where did they derive that they were allowed to commit suicide, which is another step. They're proactively killing themselves. How did they know that they were allowed to commit suicide rather than do Avodah Zarah? And the answer is that they learned out from the frogs. Because God did not put the frogs in the hot ovens where they died. He just put them in Egypt and then the frogs chose on their own to go into these hot ovens. So this was what Hanani Mishal Vazaria derived from the frogs, that just as they killed themselves, even though they're not obligated in Kiddush Hashem, so certainly Hanani Mishal Vazaria felt that they could commit suicide in a case of Kiddush Hashem. And the Manos HaLevi speculates that maybe this was a PR move. Maybe they were worried that even though they would refuse to bow, that Nebuchadnezzar and his officers would publicize that they had bowed and no one would know the difference. So they proactively jumped into the fire in order to show everyone that they were not bowing to this Avodah Zarah. So this is the Manos HaLevi's approach, that even though, of course, Hanani Mishal Vazaria were going to give their lives rather than bow to this idolatry, because it was true Avodah Zarah, but what they innovated was that in a case where a person is obligated to give their life, they don't have to wait for the guard to kill them, but they can even commit suicide in advance of this sin being done. So that's a very important approach and also a very important halacha. And the Manas HaLevi concludes this discussion by pointing to a very disturbing and harrowing statement by the Ritva. This is in the Ein Yaakov on Avodah Zarah, Dafir Chesem and Aleph. And he quotes there from Rabbeinu Tam that in a case where a person is worried that non-Jews will force them to violate one of the three major sins, such as doing Avodah Zarah, for example, they are allowed to commit suicide. And he learns this out from Shaul. And he says that Shaul committed suicide because he was worried that if he was captured by the non-Jews, they would force him to do Avodah Zarah. So we see from Shaul that it's permitted to commit suicide in order to prevent someone from doing Avodah Zarah. And he ends very, very harrowing. This is the source of the halacha that parents kill their children rather than have them be captured by crusades or other non-Jews who are going to force them to abandon Judaism. And uh, unfortunately, we do know of cases in Jewish history where communities, parents were forced to kill their children rather than have them grow up as non-Jews and be forced to abandon Judaism. So very, very tragic and upsetting aspect of Jewish history 
Uh, and the Ritva quotes from Rabbeinu Tam that the source for this halacha was the story of Shaul. And then he adds, That the rabbis in France allow this halacha lamaisa. So this is a practical ruling, which unfortunately was relevant in too many times in Jewish history. But it says the Manos Halevi that this as a halachic source seems like a strange source because it seems strange that Shaul, the king, one of the most righteous figures in the Tanakh, that he was worried that he wouldn't be able to withstand the pressure to worship idolatry. So he thinks that it's a little far-fetched to think that's why Shaul committed suicide. But, says the Manos Halevi, that his analysis of the Hanani Mishal of Azaria story does provide a source for this halacha because that is what they innovated. Unlike Rabbeinu Tam, who says that they innovated that even in a case where someone is not required to give their life, they are allowed to in order to make a Kiddush Hashem. According to the Manos Halevi, they innovated that in a case where a person is obligated to give their life, they can choose to proactively commit suicide and not wait for the person to kill them. So this would be a source for that halacha. So this is the uh, Manas Alevi's analysis of this Gemara. And as we've seen, there's a good amount of points that he touches on throughout his analysis of this issue.